ahead and open in your Bible with me, if you would, today to uh, Psalm 139. That's where we're going to start. Uh, we're going to pray here in just a moment, but before we do, I'd remind you once again that we'll gather in here tonight at 5 o'clock uh, for gathered prayer, followed by a potluck dinner and just time to enjoy each other. Uh, it's a really wonderful time. Uh, as we're starting a new month this month, we're going to be uh, praying for Bob and Teresa Reister, who are uh, some missionaries supported to, uh, by us to Japan. Um, and so we're going to, there's info on the back of your sermon notes there about them and some of their prayer requests that they've asked us to pray for this month. So turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 139. And as you do, uh, let me pray for our time. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we've had so far today to sing your praise and to to read your word, to, to fellowship with one another, and, and um, really to, to express our gratitude for all that you've done for us in Christ through song. Lord, as we turn to your word now, we, we confess that we need your help as we seek to know things that really are not understandable to us. Um, we need... We, we need your assistance by the power of your Holy Spirit to, to know what is true. Even if we can't know everything that is true about you, we can know true things about you. And so, God, let us be comforted by today's message, by your word, by the truth of who you are. Lord, we pray for um, Bob and Teresa Reister. We, we, uh, we just thank you that they have time right now to, to be in the U.S. and to be spending time with family, Lord, we pray that it would be a restful time and a rejuvenating time for them. We pray that they might have opportunity to, uh, to impact their, their children and particularly their, their grandchildren in, in spiritual ways and to bring about a maturity there. Lord, I pray that it would be uh, a sweet and wonderful time for them. Lord, as they have a bunch of video meetings next month, uh, and though I don't know what these are all about, we know that you do, and they've asked us to pray that it would be both meaningful and refreshing time for them, and we would pray that not only for them, but for others as well. And Lord, as they connect with their team, I would just pray that there would be great relational opportunity to encourage one another, uh, and that, that they would be um, just strengthened for the work that is before them. Uh, not only them, but the team as well. Lord, glorify yourself there in Japan where they work. Lord, give unity and peace to your church, and draw people to yourself. Let the gospel uh, ring clear from their ministries and from their churches and bring about faith in those who hear the message of the gospel. We pray the same for us as we look to your word. Grow and develop a faith and a trust in you for who you are. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> I thought I'd turn my mic off there. I've been, uh, been under the weather this week, so... I'm going to try and make it through <clears throat> two messages today. I'm pretty sure I can do it. As we continue in our series that we're doing on the first of the month called God Is, we're going to begin looking at the omnis of God, these characteristics, these attributes of things that are true about God that only He is. In fact, there are, uh, there's kind of two categories of, of the attributes of God. There's what we call the communicable attributes and the incommunicable attributes. Those are the, the attributes of God that he has shared with us, things that are true about him that are also true 
about us. And then there are the incommunicable attributes of God. These are things that belong solely to God, ways that we are not like Him. And today, as we look at His omnipresence, the fact that He is everywhere, this is an incommunicable attribute. And particularly, when we consider these attributes of God that, that we're not like, they're the ones that are hardest for us to understand. But omnipresence is to simply say that God is everywhere. And we're going to expand the meaning of that definition. But I want to ask the question, why start here? Why start with this one of the omnis? And the answer is because I think it connects to what we looked at last week. As we saw the Great Commission at the end of Matthew chapter 28, the the final words of Jesus in the book of Matthew are that he is with us always. Well, how is that possible? If the Reisters are in Japan and we're here, how can he be with us always? And that's the question I want to answer today. Uh, The next two months coming up, we'll look at the other two omnis. That is God's omnipotence, that he is all-powerful, and his omniscience, that is, that he knows everything. That one particularly might blow our minds. When we, I, I don't think until we really start to dig into what it means that God knows everything do we understand just how big of a statement that is. And I'm really excited about that one, but we'll get there in a couple of months. John Calvin said that the finite cannot contain the infinite. The finite cannot contain the infinite. And that is certainly true when it comes to our understanding of who God is. Our finite minds cannot contain the infinite truth of who God is. So why even look at this stuff? Is it a futile endeavor? Well, Richard Sibbs, coming along long after Calvin, though long before us, also said, How shall the finite comprehend the infinite? He then says, we shall not, he says, we shall apprehend him, but not comprehend him. We shall apprehend him, but, though, but, but not comprehend him. What does he mean by that? He means we can take hold of Christ. We can apprehend, we can take hold of things that are true about him. In fact, one of the wonderful things about the gospel is that we can not only know things that are true about him, we can know him. And we can know him not in the terms of just knowing about someone, but actually experiencing someone as he comes to live in us and dwell in us. And this is ultimately what we have in Christ. And there's more than one way we can think about this. There is first the reality of the incarnation. When Jesus looks at his disciples and says, they, say, show, they ask him this question, they say, show us the Father. He says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Because this second member of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, takes on flesh and dwells among us. And as we interact with him, we get to see this incredible picture of who he is. We get to see him incredibly tender-hearted with the broken and the contrite. We can see him at times sarcastic and fierce with those who would make a mockery of God and who would abuse God's people or who were simply hard-hearted. But maybe there's no place in the life of Christ where we see the character of God more clearly than at the cross. 
cross, we really see a, a display of a whole lot of who God is. I, I think one of the things we know for certain is that, that at the cross, there is a divine display of love. And we have to be very, very careful with that answer, though it is nonetheless true. In fact, I was leading a Bible study last Monday morning, and we were talking about this very fact. And I said, imagine that I stood before you, and I said, church, I, I love you. I love you deeply. And I, I care very much about your spiritual well-being. Now, up to this point, all of that would be true. But what if I then said, in fact, I love you so much that next week at church here as we gather, I'm going to bring Bradley up here and I'm going to kill him to show you how much I love you. That would be ridiculous. None of us would sit here and go, well, well how is that a display of, of love? Well, if it's only love, then it's not. This is a common idea even being pushed in the, the church today. A, a very faithful, for many, many years, uh, Anglican priest uh, who I would say is clearly has been evangelical, goes by the name of N.T. Wright and has written a bunch of, of really positive things, uh, has recently, within the last about four years, wrote a book where he says that at the cross, there is no wrath of God, there is only love, and that the idea that the death of Jesus would be to, to assuage the wrath of God is more akin to historical paganism than anything we see in Scripture. But if we remove wrath from the cross and all we say that happened there is love, then all we get is this disgusting act of God whereby he sends his son to die in our place to do nothing but tell us he loves us. Is there not better ways to show somebody you love them? This is why we have to have bigger views of the cross. And so at the cross, we see the wrath of God in that he pours out the punishment on us, or that, des that is deserved by us, on his son. We see the justice of God, that in that he, even though he forgives sinners because his son died on the cross in our place, he doesn't just let our sin go as though it never happened, but he punishes it. And so he's angry at our sin, but he's also gracious and merciful in sending his son to live a perfect life that we haven't lived, and to die in our place. And there is incredible love in that. There's justice in that he doesn't just let our sin go and pretend like it never happened. It doesn't work that way. It never works that way. All sin must be punished because God is just. But we see the love and the mercy and the grace of God in that he bore the punishment for us. John Piper said, I've probably said this a hundred times and I'm going to keep saying it a hundred times because it's so amazing to me. He said, the wonder of the gospel is that the very God we needed saving from 
that it's God who pours out his wrath, that it's God who poured out his wrath on his son or who will pour out his wrath on a sinner for eternity. It's not just that, that our, our punishment is something external to God. No, God is the punishment giver. The wonder of the gospel is that the very God we needed saving from is the very God who saved us. Oh, there's so much to be amazed by at the cross. And so while we cannot uh, comprehend the infinite because we're finite people, we can apprehend Christ through faith. And through his word, we can understand things that are true about him. And so today... I want to look at three truths regarding God's omnipresence. There's a lot more than this, but for the sake of, of time uh, and, and to keep this message simple, I simply want to look at three points. Number one, God is present everywhere. God is present everywhere. Steve Lawson defines God's omnipresence in this way. He says, God is in every place in his creation. There is no place from which God is excluded or barred. He is everywhere in his creation at all times. And because he's spirit, because he's not like us, and Jesus, though he has taken on a body, and, and, and that is not something he loses into eternity, is also able to, to be present everywhere in all places. One of the things that's amazing to me is that it's not only that he is everywhere, it's that when he is there, he isn't divided. He isn't divided. He doesn't have to give a little bit of his attention to you and a little bit of his attention to someone else. I remember uh, I, I was traveling with my in-town grandma who uh, had been a missionary to Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe, uh, and she was going to a, um, a missions fair at a church in downtown LA, south central LA, and I went with her, and I believe that uh, that her and her son and I were the only three white people in the whole room. It is one of the best church experiences I ever had. I've never been greeted more warmly. I think all like 800 people who were there that day must have said hi and told me their name and shook my hand. And we were welcomed and, and it was so gracious. But as a young, I think I was in middle school at that time, there was a lesson I learned that day that I'll never forget. Uh, we, uh, in the middle of the church service, the, the pastor said it was time to pray, and he encouraged people to bow their heads, and he said, let's pray, and I expected him to pray, and that's not what happened. Everybody in the whole room started praying at the same time. Not wildly or disorderly, simply praying in their seat out loud. And as a middle schooler, the thing that struck me as I heard this cacophony of voices in this church that I couldn't understand anything that anybody was saying at any one point in time was, God hears this all. And everybody in this room has his undivided attention. He is not only able to be everywhere, he is able to be everywhere in the fullness of who he is. Psalm 139, uh, one of the, the first texts we're going to look at today, presents a, this to us like a compass. Starting in verse 7 of, of Psalm 139, we read, Where shall I go from your spirit? 
Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. And so we get this first upward, almost northerly, if you will. I don't know that David has a compass in mind, but it helps me think of Psalm 139. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. It doesn't matter how high I go, Lord, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, this is not a reference to hell. This is simply a reference to the place of the dead. That's what the word Sheol would bring to mind to any Hebrew thinker. If I make my bed in Sheol, if I'm died and I'm buried in the grave and I'm in the place of the dead, like I'm heading south, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning where the sun rises in the east, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, the sea would be to the west. The sun rises in Israel in the east, same as it does everywhere else, unless you're in North Pole, and the sea was to the west. And so whether it's heaven or the grave, whether it's the east where the sun rises or the west to the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is light with you. There is no place we can go that God is not there. Some have suggested that that hell is merely the absence of God's presence. That simply uh, God's judgment on people is to send them to a place where none of his goodness exists. I think scripture would disagree with us on that. Revelation chapter 14, verses 9 through 11 says, And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hands, hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. See, the reality is hell is not the absence of God's presence. It's the fullness of his wrath. It is the fullness of the wrath that we deserve. Interestingly, as we read the book of Revelation, and you see the places where God pours out his wrath, the descriptions almost match identically what happened at the cross. There is darkness. There is earthquakes. As as God pours out his wrath, which for those of us who have trusted in Christ for our forgiveness... He has borne that wrath, and we now no longer have any wrath. How can people bear God's wrath in his presence if he isn't there? From heaven to earth to the grave to the east to the west, God is there. He is everywhere, and he is everywhere in the fullness of who he is. Secondly, we see that God is in the highest heavens. What does that mean? Well, it's in Scripture, and so I want, to evaluate, or I want to take a look quickly at what that means. Another way of saying that God is in the highest heavens is to say that He is transcendent, 
that he is far above us. And there is no way that we can overemphasize this. There's no, there's no means by which we can apply this truth and have it not be true. His, his character is transcendent to ours. If we are gracious, he is infinitely more so. If we are merciful, he is infinitely more so. If we are patient, he is infinitely more so. It's true in his power. He has infinite power. And any power he gives, whether that be Satan, who oftentimes we're really scared of, or whether that be governments in Romans 13 and 1 Peter, we see that, that all power belongs to God. And any power that anyone has is delegated by God. We see that all glory is God's and he will not share his glory with Another, and that all knowledge is God, that He knows all things. In Romans chapter 11, Paul asked the question Who has been God's counselor? Who has shared anything with God that He did not know? God is transcendent to us in every way. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 14 says, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven. This is a Hebrew word, shemayim. We're going to see it several times coming up uh, today. We see it in Genesis 1 as firmament. Um, Firmament is anything above us. It's not the earth, but everything above us is the the firmament. So uh, this is just when when your Bible says that, uh, particularly in the Old Testament, here's just a, a Bible reading clue, Um, When your Bible reads heaven, it's probably a reference to stars and moons and suns and galaxies and all of those things. When it reads heavens, that's where God dwells. And there's a little bit of that that's an interpretive decision, but the context is what tells us mostly what that is. And so here's what Moses wants us to know as he writes Deuteronomy 10.14, knowing that heavens or heaven is space, and heavens is the dwelling place of God, he says in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 14, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Maybe this is most pictured for us at the Tower of Babel. If you, uh, if you recall, in Genesis, God creates man, and man begins to multiply on the face of the earth, and civilizations are born, and cities are being developed, and then there comes along this thing called a brick. Now, bricks are incredibly important for us in understanding Genesis chapter 11, uh, and Believe it or not, we'll get there. Bricks are incredibly important for us in our day, at least our understanding of what the brick was to them. But they've got bricks, and they've got mortar, and they say, we're going to build a tower. And we're going to build this tower all the way up to heaven. And in Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 5, we read this. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. We've got bricks. We can go to where God is. We can ascend the heavens now. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the whole face 
of the earth or over the face of the whole earth. Now, here's where this gets really interesting and probably a little sarcastic on God's point. Because remember, what they're trying to do is build a tower up to the heavens. Verse 5, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Can you see the picture in heaven? As God looks down and goes, Hey, Jesus, they're building something down there. You see that? Not really. Let's go down there and see what they've built. Now, of course, God sees it. But you can hear the sarcasm. Listen to verse 5 again. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Why is this so important for us? Because bricks to them represented technology. We've got bricks and we've got mortar and we can make it all the way up to heaven. We don't need God now. In other words, 60 years ago or whatever it was when Time Magazine published the article, uh, the, the cover of Time Magazine read, God is dead. That was nothing new. That, that was being printed on the front of magazines 5,000 years before. Now, Time Magazine didn't actually believe that God was once alive and was now dead. They believed that the idea of God was once helpful and now is no longer needed. Why? Because we have technology. And for thousands of years, mankind has been developing new technologies. First it was brick, then it was metal, uh, then it was maybe alloys and steel and glass and computers and thanks to Al Gore who gave us the internet, now we don't need God. Humanity has been trying to replace God with technology from the very, very beginning. Why is this good news? Well, number one, it reminds us where to put our hope as believers. But number two, it reminds us that that God's not caught off guard. He's not threatened. I do wonder sometimes, you know, as they did this and then God scattered their languages and made them, you know, they said, hey, let us build this tower to heaven so that we won't be scattered. And God changed their languages and forced them to be scattered. I do look around at the world sometimes and I go, I wonder how long God can or will let this go on. But he's not caught off guard. He knows all of this. He knew it was going to happen before the beginning. But, but God is present everywhere. The point of this is, is not his omnipotence, which we could see there, but really to see that he is transcendent. He is far above us, so far above us that when we develop our technology to try and reach heaven and eliminate God, he says, well, maybe we have to go down there to see what they're building. Really, all this technology does is, is end up, it just keeps showing us how, God, how great God is. 
Think back to when you were in high school. Now, for me, that was only about a little over 25 years ago. What was the smallest known particle in the universe when you went to high school? I mean, it wasn't too far back. I mean, if we, if we only go 150 years to like Darwin, the cell was primarily thought to be the smallest thing that existed. And then it was molecules. Well, molecules are made of atoms. Oh, look, atoms have parts. When I went to high school, the smallest thing in existence was an electron. Well, that's not true. They've found smaller things. There's quarks now. Who knows what they'll find sub-quark level. The farther our technology goes, the more we see we didn't know. And the more we see the detail of what God had made and how far he is above us when he simply said, let there be, and it was. The, the opposite direction is true. The Hubble Space Telescope was put up into space, and then it was fixed. And then it could see things really, really well. And so they, there was a, a period of time, you can... Google this. Maybe you got your phone out right now. You, you can do it right now. I'm going to give you permission. It's probably the only time I'm ever going to tell you to use your phone in church. Google Hubble Deep Field Image. What happened was there was about a week of time that Hubble wasn't scheduled to do anything. And so they found this spot of black sky that they believed there to be nothing. And they, put, they pointed Hubble there and just let Hubble record for a week. What came back in the image was thousands and thousands and thousands of galaxies. Not stars. It looks like the night sky full of stars, but it's not stars, it's galaxies. Now the Hubble, well that's old technology. We've got the Keck Space Telescope, and they're already looking at things even farther going, man, this place is way bigger than we ever thought. Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. He is transcendent, far above us in any and every way that we can imagine. He is everywhere at all times. He is in the highest heavens, and thirdly, God is near to us. He is transcendent and eminent. He is far, far above and incredibly, incredibly close. In fact, this is a great contrast to many of the idols that we see throughout Scripture. We see uh, Elijah battling the prophets of Baal who were calling out to a God who they believe has power but who just isn't listening. It's a transcendent God but not an eminent God. You have the idols in Isaiah where people cut these idols out of stone or out of wood and, and they pray to them. And then they take the leftover wood and they burn it for heat and for food. We see so often that people's ideas of God are either that he is transcendent or that he is eminent, but not usually both. Scripture gives us an incredible uh, amount of, of pictures of this. Uh, Psalm 23, 4, most of us know, probably by heart, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will, excuse me, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. 
We must be careful, by the way, not to lose either of these truths. Because if God is transcendent and not eminent, we're like the deists who believe that God created everything, wound it up like a watch, and then just let it run and has nothing to do with us. Thomas Jefferson was one of these people. He, he might look on the surface to be an incredibly godly and spiritual man because he carried two Bibles around. You know why he carried two Bibles around? Because he went through the first one and any page that contained anything miraculous or that appeared to have divine intervention at all, he cut out. The second Bible was so that he could see what was on the back of that page. The deist believed that God wound things up and let it go. He's transcendent, he's powerful, but he's not eminent. And if he's eminent and not transcendent, well, then we just end up with a God who is like us, a, a, a truth of which Psalm 5021 reminds us not to do. These things you have done and I have been silent. You thought that I was, I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. If we lose God's eminence, he's just out there. If we lose his transcendent, he's powerless to be of any use to us, of any value to us. I think it was um, Rich Mullins who was doing like a live concert, and he was playing at the piano, and he made this statement one time at this, this concert. He said, he said, if God were as tame as most Christians wanted him to be, he would be useless to Christianity. And I think that's true. I want to consider a few verses as we wrap this up that show these two truths, God's transcendence, that he is far above us in every way, and his eminence, that, that they're both true and that we must hold them in that tension. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 39. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity. There's something to think about. He just doesn't ex inhabit every place we are right now. He inhabits eternity. You want to know how God can know all things before they happen? Ponder what it means that he inhabits eternity. Because time, he created it. There will be aspirin on your way out to deal with the headache from thinking about that. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. Steve Lawson said God has two addresses, in the heights of heaven and with the contrite and lowly. Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 23 and 24. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? This expects a positive answer. Yes, Lord, you are a God who is far away. Verse 24, can a man hide himself in the secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth? 
we can't just think of him as high or as near, but both. He is a God at hand and a God who is far away. Uh, No man can hide him in a secret place. Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 6. I almost didn't put this verse in here today. I was like, well, I'm trying to be careful of time. The point's been made. And then we sing uh, something very, very similar to this, probably coming out of uh, Colossians, but this is a very similar passage. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 6. We are told that we have one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. God is over all and through all and in all, just not in the same way. What do I mean by that? What do I mean not in the same way? I mean, if he is who he is, in the full, if he's everywhere in the fullness of who he is, how is he not with everybody in the same way? Well, the same judge who sits on the bench is the same person who is at home. But he probably dwells in the presence of the criminal different than he dwells in the presence of his family. It does not alter who he is. It simply is defined by the nature of that relationship. And while God is everywhere at all times, in all places, for all eternity, both high above and near, and he is everywhere in the fullness of who he is, he does not dwell with those who have despised his grace in the same way as he dwells with those who have trusted in his son. How do we respond to these two truths or all these truths about God's omnipresence? Well, I would say there's, there's two responses for us today. And the, sp- the first is comfort. The first is comfort. This should be something, particularly for believers, that is incredibly comforting. God is with us not only where we go, but in what we go through. He, he's... In fact, he's already there when we go there. It doesn't matter where you go. Jonah learned this lesson the hard way, right? You can't run from God. But he's not just with us where we are. He's with us in what we go through. We see this really clearly in Romans 8. And it's so unfortunate to me that, that it's, it's such a misunderstood passage. We read this one verse about the Holy Spirit interceding for us with groans too deep for words. And we go, look, they're speaking in tongues. Speaking in tongues is a thing. And people understand it differently. And there's lots of passages about it. It's just that's not one of them. And the reason it's not is because that's not the first time that the word groan comes up in, in the Romans chapter 8. The first time, uh, Paul is talking about how uh, all creation is groaning under the effects of sin, waiting to be renewed. And so creation groans under the effects of sin. And then he goes on to talk about believers who even though we're redeemed, even though we're forgiven, even though God is for us and not against us, and that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, we still experience the world under the effects of sin and fallen humanity. And so we groan under the weight of sin. But we don't groan under that weight alone. 
Because if you look at the context of Romans 8, when, when God's people are so weighed down, so pressed upon by the effects of sin that we don't even know how to pray as we ought, God is there in us. Because those of us who have apprehended him by faith, he dwells in us. And when we are so oppressed by the weight of sin, and I would venture to say there's probably not a person in this room who has not experienced that. When the effects of sin weigh so heavily upon us that it is crushing to the point that we cannot speak, the Holy Spirit prays from within us with groans too deep for words. That's what Romans 8 is about. Dig into the Psalms and you'll see that it isn't uncommon for people in their circumstances to wonder where God is. God, where are you in this? And then over and over again, we see the answer. One of the things that has been impressed upon me as I read through the Psalms just over and over and over again, one Psalm a day, is that the biggest description of God, the most common description of God throughout the Psalms is that he is a refuge, a rock, a strong tower. We can run to him in those circumstances because he's there. He's there. He's always within earshot. He is always where we are. He's not only with us in what we, where we go to, but he is with us in what we go through. And then the second is conviction. This, is, this ought to be a little convicting because we can never escape his presence. We're comforted by the fact that he is with us whatever we go through, but we should be convicted by the fact that he's with us in whatever we go do, whatever we see. In fact, I don't remember even where I read this the other day, but it was a really interesting thought. I think it was as I was studying through the book of Revelation as I'm teaching it on this, this Bible study on Monday mornings, but the statement was, you shouldn't ever do anything that you would embarrassed, be embarrassed to be found doing at the return of Christ. If, if you're genuinely a believer and you're sitting at home tonight and you have your cell phone in front of you and, and, and Jesus returns and you're gone and somebody's going to come behind you and pick it up and see what you were looking at, would you be embarrassed? Then don't do it. Don't do anything for which you would be embarrassed to be caught doing at the return of Christ because God is with us. The reformers, who are our Latin-speaking and loving brothers and sisters in Christ, used to refer to this as quorum Deo, which means the face of God. We live every single moment of our lives, quorum Deo, before the face of God. He sees all that we do, and he is with us at all times. Sometimes I wonder if we don't fear Satan a little more than we fear God. Like, it, it's, it, think about that for a moment. Think about the idea of, what if you knew some point today you were going to run face-to-face into Satan? I would be terrified. And you should be too. The reality, though, is I've probably never run into Satan. And probably neither have any of you. 
He's got lots of demons and lots of minions who are out there doing lots of work, but there's only one devil who can only be in one place at any one given time. But God is everywhere with us, going through what we go through, groaning under the weight of sin as well. There is only one devil, though. Deuteronomy 4.39, Know therefore today, and lay it to heart, that the Lord is God in heaven, and that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other. Lay it to heart. Lord, may we lay to heart that you are transcendent, far above us, above anything we can imagine.